0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at Two Guys to the dark tower You can also email us at Two Guys dark tower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll finish our read of Low Men in Yellow Coats, found in Hearts in Atlantis. Let's start the show. Bobby Garfield has a bad
1: day. A man tries to sexually abuse him. His girlfriend, Carol, gets beat up by three guys. His mom, Liz, accuses Ted of molesting him and Carol. He and Ted are confronted by the low men after Liz reports Ted, and Bobby sees Ted for the last time. After this climax, the denouement reveals that Bobby is changed by the events. He has run-ins with his teachers and the police. He spends time in juvenile homes and his relationship with his mom and Carol deteriorates. A few years after the events of the story, Bobby gets a final communication from Ted Brodigan that ties directly to the Dark Tower.
0: Wow. Bobby really did have a bad day. About the only (laughs) thing that didn't happen to him was getting lemon juice in his eye. (laughs) Oh, my. You don't like my lemon juice jokes?
2: (laughs) I just don't know where to go from there. (laughs)
1: We've we come to the end of the story. Jay, I think you and I can agree that this is one of King's better stories novellas. Yes. Pretty near perfect from start to finish, both in what King called out in our last section, which was a good story and well-written.
0: I agree. One of my favorites.
1: Yeah, and I liked it a lot. Uh, I think the fact that it tied into... The Dark Tower was even just sort of a bonus on top of that, because otherwise we probably wouldn't have had a chance to talk about it on this episode. So uh, good stuff. And I'm glad we had a chance to read it. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in this section and uh, a little bit of a downer of a of a story as it as it rolls out. I mean, it ends on a little bit of an up note of, you know, he he bobby and and his mother liz sort of saying we'll get through this and the the roses but man that last couple of chapters are just brutal
0: it's much like how when ted said to bobby about the inheritors that it satisfies the definition of tragedy i think this story also satisfies that definition there are some wonderful moments great characters and an excellent plot but it does not have a happy ending <laughs> no
1: it it starts off like Romeo and Juliet, but ends in tragedy. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: To quote <laughs> Bill House. And one of the prime movers of the tragedy is Liz Garfield. Yeah. It's her, her events that sort of twist this and turn it up until the point that Liz returns from her trip. There is this potential possibility that things are going to turn out okay. Um, Ted has won his prize fighting bet, and all he needs to do is to get to the corner pocket, collect his winnings, and be on the next train out of town. And while it'll be sad that he and Bobby don't see each other, the fact that they are both safe and potentially have a way of communicating through Carol is going to be okay. But when Liz returns from her trip and finds Carol and Bobby with Ted and Carol undressed because of the beating she's done, that's turned it all around. Especially once we also find out that she has a flyer from the low men and she's going to turn Ted in. And she's able to be able to really point where he's going to be because she finds Bobby's keychain that he got from yeah. the corner pocket. So it's sort of like uh Chekhov's gun, except now we have King's keychain that if a if a green corner pocket keychain fob appears on a shelf, it has to be used by the third act.
0: Right. And it it goes it, off in the third act for it sure. It certainly
1: does. So I think Liz is an interesting character. We've spent time talking about Bobby. We've spent time talking about Ted and how they fit in. And obviously they're the two main characters. But I think a lot of what we're supposed to take away from the story is the relationship between Liz and Bobby and her actions and reactions and how that impacts Bobby because we can see Bobby's life start to fall apart after he loses Ted.
0: Yeah. And in the moment when Liz returns from her business trip, barely able to stand and walk and see out of both eyes clearly because of the incredibly terrible thing that happened to her, and then walks in on what she thinks is child abuse. That scene is such an explosion of misunderstanding, fury, frustration, And just bad decisions that I wonder if you just sum up all the things that Liz does, all the things that Liz says in that moment, is it unforgivable? Is there a way for us to look at that moment in time from her perspective and find a way to, if not forgive her, at least understand, Hmm. um, because King does a pretty good job of making her into one of the villains of this story, but he also does a good job of making her have some dimension beyond just an antagonist. Um, so I want to find a way to at least understand.
1: Yeah, I think I understand Liz. Liz, this is something that my wife's mother used to say, I might not always like you, but I'll always love you. And I think that that's sort of what, liz runs on it seems like everything that she does she does because she wants to make a better life for her and her son Mm -hmm. in doing that she takes actions that are not good for her son in the short term um and because of the events of her life her loss of her husband the fact that she's being taken advantage of and raped by her boss and is in just a bad situation She's not able to see beyond that. Um, it seems as if she doesn't trust men, including her son. Like, I think mm-hmm. at one point she says, like, I don't know what you're going to grow up to be like, et cetera. And, and she's worried about that. And she doesn't trust Ted. She doesn't trust her boss. Like, all of these things are conspiring against her to make her do things that aren't great in the long term, even though what she wants to do is get enough money so that she can get her and her son into a better life. And the fact that she feels that Bobby doesn't see that makes her angry. And the anger that she has for any number of things causes her to act the way that she does. And that's not to excuse that behavior, but it's a way of at least understanding that behavior.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, Liz does not have a naturally like cheerful spirit or or a bright outlook on life aside from like, say her mistrust of men or, or her somewhat desperate financial situation. It always seems like they are at some point very close to poverty, like, and, or being completely broke. Hmm. Um, they, they are clearly at the lower end of the economic spectrum to begin with, despite the money that Liz hoards inside the Sears catalog and things like that. She doesn't get paid very well. And she puts up with a lot of, crap at work so that she can have a job at all um but when she's not at work and when she's not dealing with the problems in her life she's just generally not very nice you know there there's uh, a line later on in the the book says liz garfield didn't make friends right and i remember reading that and thinking yeah that's kind of (laughs) stating the obvious like like somebody like her kind of off-putting i think if people didn't know her and tried to become friendly with her they'd be confronted by her judgmental tone and her sly looks and her really abrasive uh, remarks so it's not surprising to me that she doesn't make friends that or she has very few if if any um but there is so much that she does wrong and so much bad that she contributes to that moment when she misunderstands Ted helping Carol that I really have a hard time forgiving her. Yeah. But I wonder if at the very end, when she takes Bobby's side and provides him an airtight alibi, is that enough to, to redeem her? Like, is that enough to, to balance the scales? What do you think?
1: I think it balances the scales in so far as how she treats Bobby to some extent. I think that this is a mother protecting her son when earlier, again, not to excuse it, she had not believed him when he told her something and Mm -hmm. she had hit him and thrown him across the room in that confrontation with Ted. I think it might redeem some of that, that she realizes I made a mistake and I did not believe you when I should have, Right. I am protecting you now. I don't know if it redeems her in as far as her selling Ted out for $300. No. Because, I mean, she, she doesn't know what she has done to Ted. She has no concept of, hey, was it just somebody who is looking for him because he made a bad bet, in which case, you know, maybe they're going to beat him up a little or shake him down for some money. Or are these people who are looking for him for more nefarious reasons and are going to kill him? Or what we know to be even worse, are there some sort of supernatural creatures who are terrifying, who are going to take him to some unknown place to do unknown things to try to destroy the universe? You know, she she obviously doesn't (laughs) know that. But like, basically, that's what she did for $300, which she then lies to Bobby about.
0: Yeah. What she did is certainly not worth $300. And the betrayal that is a big part of that is not worth anything. Right. And yeah, I don't think anything she could do could really balance those scales. But I I think you're right. I think that, um, the alibi makes up for most of what happened in that moment where she got everything wrong. Yep. And it's somewhat easy to understand why she jumps to all those wrong conclusions. But I just really resent the fact that as I pondered it more, I think one of the problems was that she was the adult in the room that had the most power, and because she was not capable of being fully rational in that moment, there was no way to check that power. Ted couldn't check her power because he's a guy on the run, and he can't rely on the, the convenience of society's structure to protect him or to, to place a barrier between what was really happening and this, at that moment, completely irrational person and Bobby and Carol are little kids and we saw what happens when Bobby confronts her directly he does everything he can and he gets thrown across the room for it you know so she's she is physically more powerful than everybody there and she has more power through authority yeah so there's nothing to check her there's nothing to say just put the brakes on for a minute take a breath and let's talk about this like it, that just isn't possible Ted tries Yep. And it just, every time he just says any words, she just completely comes back to the accusations and the threats and everything like like that. Uh, Because it seems like she's kind of calming down here and there. And then Ted just speaks and it's like right back to where she was. Yep. I know. And there's a lot of stuff that that Liz does leading up to this that make it really hard to like her. I mean, like, as I said earlier, King makes her one of the main villains of the story. and I I was trying to like kind of map Liz to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. Um, if you're not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it basically says that there's like kind of a pyramid of human needs. And at the, the lowest level of that is physiological needs. It's like the ability to be safe and warm and have food and air, like the things that you need so that you don't die. Right. And then only once you've satisfied those or are pretty sure that they're not going to disappear on you, then you can start worrying about other people, hmm. your relationships with them. Can you feel love, be loved by somebody? And then beyond that, you can progress to higher order motivations like self-esteem and then finally self-actualization, like that having the free time to say, create art. You know. Right. So when you look at Liz and Bobby's life, Liz is desperate. She has a job that is like torture. She doesn't get paid very much money. She needs to support herself and her son. We definitely see all the signs of being on the lower end of the economic scale. And I kind of feel like she and therefore Bobby are sort of they're hovering around that second level, that safety level, and which means that it's very difficult for Liz to go into that love or being loved area. Right. And I and I wonder if that's a reason why it's difficult for her to focus on the the nurturing aspect of being a parent because she's so fixated on the safety and the physiological uh parts of yep. the pyramid of needs. And I think this could, you know, from a psychological standpoint explain a lot of Liz's choices, a lot of her behaviors. It still doesn't explain why she like is always quick with a snappy, uh, annoying answer. You know, like, oh, got anything on your mind besides hair? You know, like that kind of stuff makes people not like you, but I don't think that has anything to do with Maslow's hierarchy, right? Right. So I think, unfortunately, those two things combined are the reason why Liz might not have friends, but those two things combined might be why Bobby has such a tough early childhood and teenage years later that we learn about.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's definitely not great for any of them. And, you know, I think the safety piece speaks to that because she not only feels like she's not safe from a financial standpoint, right? Like if she loses her job, yeah, you know, what, what are they going to do? But I don't think she feels safe at work. She's obviously nervous about going into the car with her boss. She's obviously nervous about this because she doesn't know what's going to happen. And she's right to be fearful, right? Like, Yeah, we see we we see through the eyes of Carol what has happened. You know, Bobby's dream was a precursor to that. But when Carol, who has been touched by Ted and has some of his powers rub off on her Mm -hmm. and she is touched by Liz, all of a sudden she sees the horror like she's just terrified as a girl like, oh, my God, why did they do that to you? What is happening? Like, and she's just beside herself with with terror and what has happened to Liz? So, Liz is right to not feel safe at any point in time. So, I think that that's a great point of what you're saying about um, that safety piece being a, a tough piece for Liz. Right. So, we've touched on it a little bit about sort of this confrontation between Liz and Ted. And I was struck by how many really important confrontations there were in this section of the story and how they sort of build up to a crescendo. And really lay out the the action that happens here, but also what sort of the themes are and 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 how everything plays out. So there's obviously this initial confrontation between Liz and Ted,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and Bobby's obviously involved with that too. And it comes on the heels of a off-screen confrontation between Liz and Mister Biderman and the other men, right? Previously, so there's that. Um, that's almost immediately followed by Bobby and Ted confrontation with the low men mm-hmm. which is terrifying uh, yeah. to say the least um and really bobby has no idea what he's building up to like he has this vision in his head that i am going to be able to protect ted and warn him and give him some sort of sign that he can get away and it's too late it's, bobby's too far gone and when he has that when they have that confrontation with the low men It's really just a negotiation and bargaining to get out of there with his life intact right? um, and not being taken away as well. And upon returning, Bobby has another confrontation with Liz, which is frightful in a different way. It's, it's much lower key than the first fight. Like it's not physical, but they are biting words to each other. um, And Mm -hmm. they say a lot of things that impact their relationship. Um, And then on the, the smaller end, we get the the Bobby versus Harry Doolin, where he gets his revenge for Carol by premeditating hiding with a bat and beating the living crap out of, of Harry, uh, yeah. which is which is disturbing. We have then two sort of not as key confrontations, but I wanted to point them out. And one is a non-confrontation between Bobby and the Corner Boys, which is building up towards something and Bobby's worried he's going to get beat up before the boy that he saw in the corner pocket recognized him and said hey no this guy's cool and and he survives and then of course the always popular duck versus pedophile confrontation when Bobby's able to save himself by throwing a duck at a pedophile which I was trying to explain to my daughter and wife and they were just sort of like what and I'm like yeah
0: a duck yeah it's not common knowledge but Ducks are the kryptonite to (laughs) pedophiles. Yes.
1: Oh, my. So, I mean, this story up until this
0: point, Jay, has
1: not had a lot of confrontations like this. And I know we're getting to the, the climax of the story, and so it's building up towards this. But it's been a very, if not quite serene, but it's been a nice look at a town. And we've talked about the childhood and the adulthood. And all of a sudden, in these last three chapters, it's just sort of fight, 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 fight. As,
0: as these characters come to a head. And what do you think this is all about? Well, after Bobby finishes Of Mice and Men, he comes to a realization about human nature. And that realization is that people need a beast to hunt. Hmm. And I think this is probably one of the more important themes that King is trying to tuck in here as well. Um, as you say, this is all part of the plot coming to a head. So we're going to have some confrontation. But there are so many confrontations here and it's all about when people put a label of that that beast on, on a target, they're empowering themselves, they're making themselves feel better. It's the us versus them kind of thing. So all you need to be is an, is the other and suddenly you can become a target. Mm. And we see this highlighted in probably the most clear way when we see it change course when bobby is confronted by the corner boys when he goes down there to to try to rescue ted the boys start really hustling him right they're they're going to they're going to take his money they're going to beat him up they're going to treat him really badly just because he is different they think of him as one of those fancy uptown kids yep not like us and then His old buddy who he met in the pool hall previously says, no, he's one of us. Yeah. And suddenly Bobby's okay. Yeah.
1: And then to further that point, when Bobby mentions the low men, they all bond over that, right? Because now there's another other um, and they're like, oh yeah, we got to stay away from those guys. Those guys are bad news. And they talk Mm -hmm. about their different stories of what they've seen and what they haven't seen and what they think they are and what their cars are like. And that becomes a bonding moment because now they have a another other that they can all bond around. Um, and in this case, they realize that they are overmatched and that they might be the beast who is being hunted at that point. Yes. And so when I was reading it, I had this sort of glimmer of hope like, oh, yeah. So it's a good thing that Bobby met that kid because now he's going to have the corner boys for protection. And when they go to rescue Ted, he'll at least have backup. And then they'll be able to rescue Ted and this story will end up all right. And instead we see the corner boys who had been presented as these toughs sort of say, nope, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm noping out. I'm having nothing to do with those guys because they're bad news. You're on your own, buddy. And
0: good luck. (laughs) But when I first uh, saw that they had seen and sort of recognized the low men for not necessarily what they truly were, but that something wasn't right about them and that they were scary in a way that they couldn't quite describe. I got excited, like, so there are adults that can see and sense the danger that the low men represent. But because I was envisioning these guys as being like, I don't know, in their twenties. Yeah. Sort of like uh I I was picturing them like John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever kind of thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like walking down the road, getting a slice of pizza, you know, they got their hair just so you know everything is that because um, Bobby's friend says like oh I I've, I've spent the last two hours getting my hair right for the street right. right you know he's he's doing himself up you know and it turns out that they're actually just boys like Bobby realizes this once he sees how scared they are it's they're boys so they might be a little older than Bobby but they're not they're probably just like fifteen
1: yeah. I, I I sort of get the sense that they're like the, uh, the the boys who beat up Bart in The Simpsons, right? Just a couple years older, mm-hmm. but enough at that age where you're like, "Holy crap! Those are the big kids." Their voices have changed,
0: and they'll beat the crap out of me. But really, in all likelihood, they're still just kids. wait. It, isn't the one who with the with the crew cut? Isn't he like 32 or something? <laughs> yeah, Kearney
1: is it? Kearney. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um. The duck v. pedophile confrontation, it it made me ponder the mystery of, would you rather fight one pedophile-sized duck or 20 duck-sized pedophiles? <laughs> uh, I think I'll stay out of that fight entirely if I can at all help it. <laughs> you just throw ducks at every one of them and you know, you'll yeah. be fine.
1: Yeah, but again, King's sort of a master at pulling through the theme of What we saw in *Lord of the Flies* and bringing it through to this piece, you know, of of fighting the beast, having the beast as being the other, and just all these confrontations coming to a head, and it might be worth just mentioning a little bit about Bobby's premeditated attack on Harry Doolin. Like it's brutal. Like, yeah, like Bobby is not really a good person, and perhaps this is the only way that he can get back at Harry. But um, he has sort of devolved, and we see that again when he is arrested for shoplifting a little bit later, right? So, like, this beating of Harry is the first encounter with the police. And King has that nice l- line where he says, you know, Liz would get used to having policemen showing up on her front step. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this is the first time. But then later on, he, he's caught for shoplifting, and he immediately lies to the cop. He says, oh, yeah, my name's Ralph. And Ralph, of course, is the name of one of the characters in Lord of the Flies. And then he says, Oh no, that's not right. My name's really Jack Pettigrew, which is then the, the other kid in Lord of the Flies. And you know, he's still trying to to capture, hey, here's who I am. And unfortunately, I'm I'm like these characters. Society's falling apart and I've become part of it.
0: But isn't it that the Jack Pettigrew was one of the, the good the ones that, that held on to the like civilization? He tried longer. To. Yes.
1: But I think he was also trying to say, like, I'm not the boy who's being picked on, but at the same time, I'm still part of this devolvement of society in some way, because none of them, I don't think any of them are safe at the end of the book, right? Like, they've all been changed in some way. Good stuff. Well, Jay, I think it might be time for our Dark Tower Thinny section. There are a lot of connections to the Dark Tower. And I realized when I asked you a couple of episodes ago, like, hey, when you read this book, did you realize it was Dark Tower related? And you were like, oh, when I first read it, I didn't realize that at first. And I'm like, oh, by the time you got to this section, it must have been like hitting you over the head. Like, hey, here's a Dark Tower reference. And here's another one. And here's another one. And I'm just going to not even make slight references, but outright discussions of the Dark Tower here.
0: Yeah, it couldn't have been more obvious if Roland himself were reading the story to me (laughs) yeah um we'll just focus on a few of them because the tail end of this story is almost all a thinny in and of itself right so so one of the ones i wanted to call out was that bobby has a lot of realizations and intuitions that are correct when he opens up the envelope of rose petals Mm. and one of those is a thought that there's not just one world not just one there are other worlds than this, millions of worlds, all turning on the spindle of the tower. And this is exactly our understanding of what the tower is. This is what we learn in the Dark Tower books. Bobby has this direct connection to the rose petals of the fields of the Kankano Ray, and maybe through the magic of the, the tower and his physical connection to these petals, you know, he, he understands, even if he doesn't fully grasp it. Yes. You know, and maybe he gets some sense of how big the situation really is, just how important Ted is to this story, perhaps. And from our
1: perspective, having finished reading the books, we realize that despite the nature of this story being a tragedy, that there is actually a happy ending of sorts here. Yeah. Because we know that A, the Dark Tower has been saved, and that B, Ted Brodigan has been there because he's mm-hmm. able to collect these rose petals. Um, and obviously, that could not have happened timing wise in the book until after Agul Ciento has been freed, the breakers mm. are no more, and Roland has saved the Dark Tower and made his way there. Ted Brodigan obviously followed after there and got there to get the pedals. So we it's know spoilers for the Dark Tower. I know, really, right? But like, I mean, that's sort of my takeaway from this that there is a little bit of hope here at the end. In addition to the fact that as we said earlier, you know, Bobby and his mother after he opens this letter sort of reunite and say, you know, what are we gonna do? She says, the best we can, he says, the best we can. So there's a little bit of hope here at the end.
0: Yeah. you know, joking aside about spoilers, King wrote this book before, before five, he wrote he wrote book five, let yep. alone six and seven. Yep. So if you had read this book in publication order like we did originally and you see this, does that kind of spoil the ending a little i don't know like i guess you would have to make that assumption i don't you know like unless
1: the rose, like if you you would had. i mean i guess the rose petals had already been discussed right mm-hmm. eddie eddie had already had his vision of the tower surrounded by roses so we knew what that meant but uh i don't know if, if people would have made that leap but earlier on uh, another thinny is when ted meets with the low men he actually says at that point there is a gunslinger. And the low men say gunslinger pa. And he's like, yet he and his friends have reached a borderland of Edworld. So Ted has somehow already seen the fact that Roland and the Quartet are approaching and are on their mm-hmm. way there. So I mean, that's like really just sort of spelling it out like, hey, I know about Roland and he's on his way and he's gonna potentially save the day here. Um big
0: Yeah, and there. he's telling us the reader pretty much exactly what the Roland status is at the end of book four. Yes. Right? So we're not learning new information from Ted in in regards to that. You know, it's not like oh, uh, they're hanging out in Colibrí Sturgis right now. Right, like he he doesn't say that. But it's interesting that Ted somehow has even this information. You know, he's been trapped in Siento, was transported through a magic uh, teleportation doorway that Chimi made for him, and ended up in 1960s Connecticut. When did he have a chance to know what Roland's doing? Good question. There seems to be all sorts of time and space things here
1: that can boggle your mind if you get too deep into it. I know we try to map it out at one point and it's just all over the map here.
0: But that sort of leads me to like a a question that I had is, you know, it seems like the publication order of these books kind of matters. Hmm. If King is going to be this blatant with Dark Tower content, it kind of makes this into a Dark Tower book. And if you read this out of order, like we just have, does it change your experience does it lessen your experience does it matter um should it matter i i don't know yeah it
1: it's tough right like if you're going to tell a story if you feel that something is an essential part of the story i think you've got to plug it in and make it that mm-hmm. like king sort of has done with the wind through the keyhole and he, and when he has said in his own words that he thinks that that is volume 4.5 in the series yeah um he has not said like this is volume 4.75 or or something like that but it kind of is but it kind of is yes like it, and whether or not it is essential or you know little sisters is sort of a prequel and it's not essential but it's sort of set in the dark tower world is there anything in here that is essential for us understanding the plot of the dark tower and 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 telling that story and i'm i'm not sure that there is i think it adds a nice piece we get a much better understanding of ted and and his mm-hmm. background and why he is the way he is in book seven but yeah that's a tough one reading reading this out of order and i think there's probably readers who would have it both ways
0: yeah uh you and i struggled with that exact issue when we were making plans for our podcasts right we debated many times should we should we tackle low men in yellow coats before we start book five or at least book seven Yeah. Or should we stick to the core books? And we ultimately came down on the decision to stick with the core books and we'll, we'll eventually make our way to this story and others like it after finishing book seven. And I think that's a fine decision. I don't regret it, but I do know that when we catch up with Ted in book seven, I kept saying, oh man, I really wish we could have talked <laughs> I about really this. wish we could have talked about this already. Yeah.
1: And yeah, I can see it both ways. I guess the more interesting question for me is the reader who has read this story and is not familiar with the Dark Tower and what their takeaway is, because I think the first eight chapters you can get through, and while you see a couple of thinnies that we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. they were slight enough that you could just sort of read over them and be fine. Um, By the time you get to this part of the book, it's pretty heavy-handed here, uh, the, the Dark Tower stuff, and you could go a few pages and be like, what on earth are they talking about? What is this gunslinger thing? What is this tower? What are these roses? What is the role of Ted Brodigan and what he's doing, and why should I care about it as a reader who has not invested the time in the Dark Tower? And I wonder what those readers think. And obviously I was one of them, but I don't remember enough about my reaction. I do remember liking the story, but I have a feeling like I just sort of blurred all of that out of my mind um and it's interesting i think we're going to talk at some point but you know they made a movie of this of this story and they just stripped out all the dark tower stuff and my understanding is that movie holds
0: up pretty well and people like that movie despite
2: that so
0: yeah i mean i king could have made a couple of small tweaks to this story and completely left out everything with the dark tower I, i mean if you if you look at the structure of like say Firestarter, and replace the low men with the shop agents and you've got a guy with telepathic abilities being chased by some secretive shadowy group and he's on the run and at the end of the story he gets caught right and that still works right but i really like the fact that this is a dark tower story i love the fact that ted brought and his his telekinetic powers are really important to the dark tower story And, um, and I liked how this is, if you look at it from a certain perspective, it's kind of like King wrote a story about, he wrote a whole book about one of those side characters that we meet along the way in Roland's story. Like if he had written the John Cullum story, like we've kind of talked about and said, Oh, I wish he would write that. That would sound, that would be so awesome. (laughs) Like, this is kind of like that. It's like, if Ted were just this character we meet for a little while in book seven and he explains what a breaker is and the whole nine there and that's all we ever get of ted that would be fine but then king went one step further and wrote a, a whole story about ted while he was on the run and so it's cool it's like it's like a spin-off yeah story exactly it's like the laverne and shirley of the dark tower <laughs> or the mork and mindy yeah well, well it was good i
1: Yeah, I can't emphasize enough how much I enjoyed the story and what a good read it was. Um, And I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about it and, and cover it here because you're right that the Dark Tower stuff, especially after just reading the whole series, it did add something to me that obviously I missed the first time when I read this and it does add a certain emotion to it knowing like where Ted's going and the fact that Bobby's eyes are open to a bigger world he's never going to see all of it as you said he's never going to grasp the whole thing but he's going to see a little piece of it Mm -hmm. and and what that means and also just how we've seen how Roland and his quest how it directly impacted his quartet in ways good and bad and here's a character who's immensely impacted by it like his life totally changes and it's only because of you know a few weeks with a guy and one encounter with a men, and it's enough to send him just sort of into a spiral just because of yeah. the the horrifying nature of not only the the low men themselves and the, the way the tentacles build into their brains and just the the knowing of what they could potentially do to him and Ted but seeing the cars and just how they react just you get that sense of if you were to ever see something supernatural, how much that would just sort of mess with your mind in a crazy, crazy way.
0: Yeah. I mean, look at all the the one-off characters in the Dark Tower books, like the woman who saw Susanna materialize right. in New York City, right? She Her life basically just was ruined by yep. that experience because no one would believe what she saw and she did see it. So yep. it's like, how do, you, how do you...
1: It's one thing to see somebody just sort of materialize in space that wasn't there. It's another thing to see cars that are alive and... I mean, is it the Crimson King who's actually sitting in the car, but at one point, like, he sees a, like, different from the low men. There's just a horrible guy in one of the seats of the cars, and he's just...
0: No, uh, Bobby sees the low men for what they really are. Oh, the guy in the like, car, like, got it, yeah. Like, yeah, like, his his human disguise is kind of uh. Here, it's presented, like, it's sort of like um a magical disguise. Right. Like, like if you... If you know how to see past it or if he lets down his guard for a moment or stops concentrating, you'll see his true form, right. like the little sisters. But that doesn't quite jibe with what we know about the Kantoi that when we learn about them in Dark Tower 7. I mean, these are physical creatures with like rat-like faces and human-looking faces, like masks over their heads. Mm. So I think they could fall asleep and still look like a rat-faced creature with a mask on. Right. I don't see why Bobby would see this long, thin-limbed thing, but I don't know. There, there's a little bit of disagreement here between this book and, and the Dark Tower. The, the
1: Dark Tower funny. canon, but yeah, we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah. All right, Jay. I think it's on to fun stuff.
0: Yeah, fun stuff. I'll kick it off. Uh, there is just so much great writing and imagery and stuff like that in this section. And one of the standouts for me was Bobby encounters some uh, girls who live in his neighborhood just as the overhead streetlights turn Mm. on. And King states it as, when the pole light near Spicers came on, Bobby and the girls grew sudden shadows much longer than they were. Mm. I just really like the sudden shadows.
1: Yeah, that's nice. I have always thought of Stephen King when I see a Greyhound bus because he has a tendency to call it the big gray dog.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I don't think this is the first time or the last time that this has come up in a Stephen King book, but uh, we see it here again because Bobby asks if that's how Ted's going to leave town. And, you know, it's best that Bobby doesn't know. So he doesn't get that information, but I love that. I love the imagery of calling it the big gray dog. I always wonder though, why the big gray dog is spelled gray with an a when Greyhound's bus is gray with an E.
0: King always spells gray with an A.
1: Right. But you would think you'd say gray with an E when it refers to the big gray dog of Greyhound. But,
0: eh. I'll blame it on his editor. Another example of the wonderful imagery in this section is when King says that uh, the apartment buildings with fire escapes zigzagging up the sides like iron lightning. Oh. Pretty cool. I love the the imagery. It also makes me think of Joe versus the volcano. <laughs> <laughs> and that lightning symbol just keeps coming back uh, throughout the movie it's great <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie it is an unsung masterpiece it does not get the credit it deserves a, a lesser
1: movie in the tom hanks au revoir. that's right <laughs> uh when bobby realizes that ted is going away and they're having the discussion about it and eventually Ted's like let's not dwell on the sadness let's move on and talk about something else and Bobby's like what are we going to talk about and Ted says books of course we'll talk about books and I think that that's just sort of pulling through that theme of literature that we've talked about uh, in the previous couple of episodes um, there's a lot of book stuff here you, you know more of it on Of Mice and Men and mm-hmm. that I that's one of the four books that Ted leaves behind for Bobby I um, he specifically gives him instructions of you know, read Of Mice and Men first and think about guys like us and what does that mean? Um, getting back to that us versus them piece that we talked about before. Yeah. Uh, Bobby and Ted are are guys like us. They're the Lenny and...
0: Lenny and Squiggy? <laughs> the Lenny <laughs> and
1: Squiggy of Of Mice and Men. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Laverne, how old? Wow, two Laverne and Shirley <laughs> references in one episode. George
1: and Lenny. It's, of course, it's George. Tell us about the rabbits, George. Tell <laughs> us about the rabbits. It, it wasn't until I was in like ninth grade that I realized that's what ra- that's what those Bugs Bunny commercials were, mm-hmm. <laughs> or Bugs Bunny stuff was about. It's amazing how much culture I learned from Bugs Bunny and didn't know it at the time.
0: Oh yeah. Um, another uh, great piece of imagery is when we read about the warehouses. And how they loomed like giant faces from which most of the features had been erased. Hmm. Just kind of, I don't know, just, it's so nice. It's so nice to just think of them as like kind of blank faces. For a guy who grew up
1: in like middle of nowhere, Maine, King's done a good job in the lines that you've pointed out of capturing some city imagery. The yeah. apartment buildings, the warehouses, the street lights and their their effect on people. Um So we talked a little bit before about how the car seems alive to Bobby, and in fact, it probably is. And this seems like a direct reference to From a Buick 8, and I'm not sure if we consider From a Buick 8 exactly Dark Tower, Jason. I know when I read it, which is before I read any of the Dark Tower books, I considered it more of a Cthulhu mythos type things, Is there's sort of the beyond the realm of man this car is somehow attached to. Um, It is my least favorite Stephen King book of all time it's just not a good book um, and it's not great I might need to give it another chance just to see if it's tied into the dark tower but if there's somebody out there who can say no it's not dark tower related at all I'd really appreciate that because I did not enjoy that read at all
0: yeah I read it one time and didn't enjoy it either and I don't really remember how or if it connects but I think it makes sense if you think of the that Buick as one of the low men's cars that somehow got abandoned in, yeah. in like the normal world. And because it's that car and it just has all these strange properties, but without a low man to drive it, it-
1: It, it still has some of its inherent power,
0: but not all of it. Yeah. 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 Not, not, not my favorite at all. So one more great line for me. Bobby looked up at the stars, stacked billions, a spilled bridge of light. Stars and more stars beyond them spinning in the black. Hmm. I plan to memorize that line. And the next time I'm I'm off away from the the lights of the city and I can see the stars, I'm going to make sure I say that out loud because that's just a wonderful description of the night sky.
1: Well, Jay, I think that's a wonderful line to end it on. And we will finish our discussion of low men in yellow coats there and that will be all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks Jay thank you links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes you can email us at two guys at gmail.com our Twitter handle is at two guys dark tower you can also find us on our facebook page at facebook.com two guys dark tower or join our facebook group at facebook.com groups slash two guys dark tower if you like the show please rate us on iTunes Next episode, join us as we start the title story of Hearts in Atlantis, covering parts 1 through 22. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCur. Thanks for listening.
2: Laverne! <laughs> Hello!